It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. It is my honor and privilege to invite my guest today, the District Attorney of Brooklyn, which is its own county and a borough, Eric Gonzalez. DA Gonzalez, welcome to Cut to the Chase. Thank you for having me, Laura. So in some circles, the word prosecutor has become a bit of a dirty word, which I personally take umbrage with because my husband is a former prosecutor. And in fact, Ken Thompson, your former boss, was actually at my wedding because my husband and Ken were assistant U.S. attorneys together in the Eastern District. But I just wanted to ask you, does that bother you, the fact that prosecutors maybe don't get the respect that they should or used to get? Well, I can tell you that growing up, I knew that I wanted to be a prosecutor. I was, you know, I've lived in tough neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Where in Brooklyn? My entire life. My family had lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant and Williamsburg before it had become gentrified. Yeah. And then mostly I grew up in East New York and Brooklyn, which unfortunately has had the distinction for the last 40 years of leading the city in gun violence. It, yeah. led, the, it led the city in gun violence 40 years ago. It led the city in gun violence this past year. Hmm. So I grew up in a neighborhood that was incredibly difficult in terms of crime. Uh, Did you feel it on a day-to-day basis, going to school and going shopping with your parents and all that sort of thing? Absolutely. I mean, this is why I said I, I really thought about prosecution for a long time. I mean, you know, from the time I was in high school, I started to think about being a prosecutor because public safety was on my mind every day. Were you anxious? Was it an anxious childhood? Well, I used to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue to get to the train station on Livonia. Yeah. And I had to avoid this was I grew up during the crack cocaine epidemic. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, you know, be careful, turn corners. I used to tell the story about peeking around the corner before I went down the block to see who was up the block, whether it be some gang activity or drug dealers or people who were acting out because they were under the influence of crack cocaine. Hmm. So public safety is something that I grew up thinking about from the time I was very young. I went to East New York you know, before high school and going to move into a new neighborhood like East New York when you're a young man means that you have to be really hyper vigilant for your public, you know, for your own personal safety. Yeah. That made me really think about, you know, the relationship we had with the police department and, you know, communities that were not necessarily on the same page with policing practices, but really relied on the police so much for public safety. Yeah. So there's many ways that you can go in childhood, especially when you live in a, in a rough area. What was it? I mean, I know you talk about being concerned about public safety, but why a prosecutor particularly? I really believed that a prosecutor was uniquely positioned within the criminal justice space to focus on 
fairness and safety at you know at the same time they were not mutually exclusive right prosecutors had the dual role of putting away bad guys but also sort of being a check on and balance against policing practices you know they had to carefully examine arrest for a probable cause and acting within the scope of law that was permissible and i thought that was an important feature. But I think what really intrigued me about the role of a prosecutor was this discretion that's inherent with the job, making decisions Mm -hmm. on who got second chances and who had to go away upstate to prison. And I thought when I looked at the local prosecutor in Brooklyn, I didn't see many people who looked like me or came from my community in that decision-making space. And Quite it was early. Charles Hines back then yeah. when we were, because um, yeah. you and I are about the same age. I remember yeah, that. Joe Hines hired me and he did a lot of good work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a young man growing up, there were not black or Latino faces in the leadership roles hmm. in that office. None of them lived in my neighborhood, lived in East New York or hmm. lived in the most challenging neighborhoods of our city. And I felt like they were a little bit, you know, removed from the day to day issues. And I thought, Somebody who lives in this community should have the opportunity to make decisions about what's in the best interest of our community, public safety wise, but also thinking about fairness. And so that role, you know, a prosecutor is the only job, I think, where you're you're charged with doing justice. You're there for the to obviously hold someone accountable who's been accused of a crime. You're there to help victims, but you're also there to think about what's in the best interest of the community at large. You don't have per se a client. You're there just to do the right thing. And I think in that space, prosecutors are unique. And to your question, it is you know very concerning to me and for our, our criminal justice system that prosecutors now are being held in such low regard by many mm-hmm. um, because I really do think we are the people who day in and day out are trying to do the right thing by our communities. You know, you talk about before your time, there really weren't a lot of black and brown people ascending to these roles. We're seeing that change now. I saw that you wrote a very kind and spirited affirmation of Judge LaSalle going for top judge. And this is something that as a Democrat was very difficult for me to watch, to watch what happened. And then last week we saw him alone in the gallery and the whole Senate voted. And, you know, he didn't he didn't succeed in getting to that place. I know that you, you've known him for a while. You're friends with him. You respect with him. How was that for you to watch that happen? And really, because he was a prosecutor, really more than anything else. And if you dug into the rationale, this is my opinion, of why some of these legislators didn't like him. If you really looked at it, they made perfect sense why those decisions were made based on the law. I was incredibly disappointed about his treatment. Obviously, I presume that everyone who voted against him did so for the reasons that they believed in. Mm-hmm. But I thought he was vilified in ways that were completely unfair. And, you know, full disclosure, I've known Judge LaSalle since law school. Oh, you he were in was, law school together? Yeah, Michigan? Was, University of Michigan Law School. Mm -hmm. He was a little bit of a mentor to me. He was Mm. two years ahead of me in law school. So he helped me when I first got on to that campus. Two New Yorkers. Two New Yorkers, two Puerto Rican New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. There weren't many in the law school at that time. Probably four in, in the entire law school. Wow. From New York who were Latino. And 
So he was a bit of a mentor to me because of that. I've got to know him for a long time. And I'm just incredibly impressed by who he is as a person. He grew up in Suffolk County in Brentwood. Brentwood, not an easy place. Not an easy place. You know, he decided to do two tours in the Suffolk County DA's office because he grew up in a neighborhood that he was concerned had a gang problem. And he went on to lead that gang bureau in Suffolk County. And we know that there have been issues with MS-13 yeah. and other things. He did everything that we tell our children to do. And, and particularly, you know, there's this sense if you're a person of color to achieve this level of success that the judge has done being the presiding justice of the second department or myself right. leading the DA's Not office. Not easy to get in those places. There's a path and you have yeah. to do the right things. And you know, he, he went on to a very good college, excelled, got to one of the best law schools in the country, did everything he needed to do to put himself in this position to be the first person of color to lead our court system. Mm -hmm. And his selection came after a statewide search. You know, my understanding, over 60 people applied. They narrowed it down to six people. And the governor selected someone who had a reputation of being you know, a consensus builder on the court. I'm fortunate because I get to see his work closely in the second department because hmm. my office is in the second department. And you know, I take exception with some of the characterizations of the judge as being anti-woman, anti-union, anti-accused. It's not my experience with him, and it's not how I read his cases in the larger scheme of his 5,000-plus cases where he's been part of that panel. Yeah. I, I mean, I looked into all of those because I was curious, and I agree with what you just said. So, sorry, I, I also think that once that narrative came out, the lay person who's not a lawyer, who is not familiar with the restrictions on a mid-level appellate court, it was very hard to change that narrative. And The other thing that was hard to watch is that it becomes less about Judge LaSalle and more about the power play in Albany between the legislature and the governor. Who's tougher? Who's, you know, who's going to be the boss here? Who's in charge? It seemed to be he was put in the position of pawn unfairly for him and I think also unfairly for the state. Yeah, it hurts the you know Latino community mm -hmm. that one of our you know best was positioned in the place uh, where there was a power struggle between branches of government. We need to make sure that the next chief judge of this state continues to build consensus, yeah. and it's going to be hard because it's seemingly our courts are divided. So I want to talk in a minute about your ability to build consensus. You don't have to comment on this, but we see Alvin Bragg, your counterpart in Manhattan, not getting such great press and having a lot of problems that you don't seem to have. So just put a pin in that for a second. I'm curious to know, just to go back to growing up in East New York and Williamsburg, you know, walking to school, having to look around the corner. Not a lot of kids growing up in East New York become the DA or make it to law school. Did you have special encouragement from your family, or was this a drive that you had within you? So my parents were not very involved in my schooling in the way that hmm. you would hope, the way I'm involved in my, my children's So schooling. not helicopter parents. No, um, <laughs> they neither had gone very far in school. In fact, my dad had a second grade education. 
So school um, hmm, wow. was something that they wanted me to, you know, very important for me to graduate from high school to them. But going to college was not something we discussed. And actually, I was very lucky because there was somebody who had a special interest in my education. And it was a woman who ran a program from Aspira, which is a organization that works with, you know, Puerto Rican and other Latino kids to um, Hmm. move them towards higher education. And so this woman who I got to meet, who ran a program for young Hispanic students, met me when I was in about 10th grade Hmm. and asked me what my plans were post high school. I said, joining the military. And she said, why not college? And I said, I've never really thought about it. And she bought me a Barron's SAT book and had me come to her office on Saturdays to study for the SATs. I give her a lot of credit because she did that for five of us. And four of the five of us have done very well for ourselves being that early influence in our life. God, uh, it's so important, isn't it, to have that just that one person can make such a difference. Correct. But this was not something that I saw. In East New York, there were not a lot of two-family households, at least among my friends. There were very few people, if Mm. any, that had gone to college. I only knew one college graduate growing up. And so this was really unknown to me. And it's something that I've used my platform as DA Mm -hmm. and a lot of the work that I do to expose younger people, sort of like an internal social mobility within the city, taking them places, showing them things, letting them know, especially for those kids who grow up in poor and under-resourced communities, they can be more than what they see around them. Right. Did violence ever impact your family? It did. I lost a brother to gun violence. Oh, I'm sorry. And so, like I said, Growing up, public safety was always something on my mind. Can I ask how old he was? He was in his very young 20s. I'm sorry. So it's something that personally has Mm. impacted my family. But I want to say this. It's when I ran for district attorney, it was unexpected. Mm -hmm. I worked. I was chief assistant DA. I had a a career in the DA's office for about 18 years and my boss. So it wasn't your goal to run for DA? Well, I never thought I could do it, to yeah. be honest with uh-huh. you. It's a multi-million dollar race. Yeah. Uh, I was a career prosecutor. I didn't have a lot of friends who were in politics yeah. per se. Ken Thompson selected me to be chief assistant DA, which means I was the number two person over the office mm-hmm. and when he was sick and fighting cancer. I was running the office as the acting district attorney. Hmm. You know, several months later, he passed and there was a path for me to take over the office. I thought it was incredibly important to do so because the office had just gone through a transition after 24 years of Charles Hines to Ken Thompson. We could not have survived a another transition so easily. Mm -hmm. And so I became very committed to continuing the work that Ken had started around wrongful convictions. But I also had a lot of thoughts about how I could help transform that office into a place that really served the needs of Brooklynites. Yeah. I never forget um, that there were six or seven people that started out in that race and that the people of Brooklyn selected me in part because I was a career prosecutor, that I had that experience knowing what we needed to do in terms of moving us towards safety. 
but also what needed to be done in terms of reform. And I think that many of the progressives, prosecutors across the country, they come in as outsiders. They're, yeah. they're not known by their judges in their county or the police departments that they have to work with. And so there's immediate tensions. For me, I've been lucky and blessed that I had a long career in Brooklyn before taking on this role. Mm -hmm. So I knew my judges. I knew who the police personnel were. And so we can always work through any disagreements we have about policy or cases. And during my six years as Brooklyn district attorney, those kind of stories about dysfunction with judges or the police department those things don't really happen because there's a reservoir of goodwill. You always have to continue to build consensus. Absolutely. A reservoir of goodwill is a good way to put it. And we don't see the drama that we might see in some of the other offices in Brooklyn. And you talk about building consensus. I imagine being the DA, being the public face, your job really is to build those bridges with community, with police, Did you have to shift your perception of police growing up in East New York to now? Or did you trust police then? Were you comfortable talking to cops? Or was it a shift that you had to go through in your head? I think as a young person, I had a, and growing up in East New York, I had a typical, what I would consider, relationship with the police, which was we knew that we needed them. Yeah. And we wanted to see, I always felt safer when there was a police officer on the train station mm-hmm. with me. I, you know, I, I took difficult train. You went to high school in Coney Island, I if did. I, if I, I, I read that John right. John Dewey High School. Yeah. So that's Island. a schlep. Yeah, it was an hour and 20 minute ride, <laughs> but I always felt better when there were police officers yeah. on there. But there were also incidents where you had to question whether or not that police department valued you in the same way that they valued other communities. Mm. I've seen that as a young person. Mm. I saw that a little bit around COVID enforcement when as district attorney, I saw in some parts of my county where the police department was handing out masks. And in Brownsville, they were arresting people for not social distancing. And that was before I think the mayor wisely decided that the the police shouldn't be involved in social distancing. Yeah. And so enforcement has, you know, typically looked different in different communities. And I think that's an issue. Most of my constituency that come from black and brown communities who live in neighborhoods with you know difficult crime rates um, always say the same thing to me. They want strong relationships with police department. They want fair and just um, policing. And so that is what I work on as the district attorney, figuring out how we partner with those community members to move the ball forward in terms of public safety. I also think that as a young person, I saw communities wanting to do things, tenant patrols and things. They wanted to do things in conjunction with policing. And so I... That's an undertold story, but I've seen that everywhere and for, for, for decades. And that has influenced my thinking on how we work in the district attorney's office. We have to give a space to the community to be co-leaders in public safety. We can't tell them we know what's best and we're going to do it this way. We have to get their input 
every community, I think, has thoughts about what they need in their neighborhoods. And if we bring that together, we're going to build more trust. That's right. Yeah. People know their communities better than anybody else. And I think there's an appropriate resentment when some entity comes in and says, well, we know what you need and we know we know how to give it to you. So just be quiet. We know better. Uh, I think we do something in. really unique in Brooklyn. I'm very proud of it. We have zone prosecutions. You know, most DA's offices, they have their lawyers, they go to their where they write up the cases, they write up the cases, they carry the case, they're the prosecutor in the case, and it's borough-wide. Hmm. In Brooklyn, our lawyers are assigned to regions, so normally it's either four or five precincts, and they're hmm. expected to kind of know the geography, the people, the places, the clergy, yeah. those, the stakeholders in the community. And I think that sort of models very closely now what the police department is trying to do with more... Um, community-based uh, policing models, community policing. Brooklyn has done that for a long time, and it allows us to get to know our communities in, in a much closer way. It's very hard to for a prosecutor to understand every neighborhood in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. but here they only have you know, four to five precincts that they are expected to handle cases out of. Which is great because those roots need to go deep. Yeah. And when you talk about knowing the local pastors, the civic leaders, and then it's also helpful, well, not to build trust, but also to, you know, well, who should we talk to about this or that? It's, it, it's a two way, it's a two way street. Both, it it both builds a lot of trust, it, but it also does something else. Our focus has been on driving down violence in the city. And of course, my focus in Brooklyn is about making Brooklyn safer each and every year. When you work in a small geographic area as a prosecutor, you also get to know which are the problem families in that neighborhood, um, the yeah. problem people. Growing up in East New York, I could tell you that there was a small group of people that were driving the violence. Isn't it and usually I, the way? And that was part of my thinking that the people at the DA's office didn't really know who those were because they were too far removed. They weren't proximate to that problem. You know, they didn't have skin in the game the way I think people should have. Um, and so I've asked my prosecutors to do more than just simply prosecute cases, but to get to know their communities mm -hmm. um, and get to know who and work with the police to get to understand who's driving the violence. And by doing that, we've been very successful in Brooklyn in reducing, in particular, gun violence. And you're busy. Just last week, we had Randy Jones arrested and indicted for the killing of the NYPD officer, Adid Fayez. I've seen you been reading about sex trafficking in Brownsville. That was a couple of weeks ago, a forging case involving Democratic Party officials, ghost guns. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's a it's a big it's a busy and, and beautiful borough. It is a big and beautiful borough. I love I actually love the borough. I've lived there myself in the past. And something that you've started that you've announced late last year was a brand new gender based violence division. Tell me what that is and why you started it. I'm so glad you asked that question because I'm always asked about gun violence and gang violence. And of course, that is, you know, as my mission as district attorney is to eradicate gun violence. Gun violence destroys communities. Yeah. Um, we lose family members to gun violence. You know, since the terribleness of 2020 when crime surged, Brooklyn has seen a, a you know, a 31% reduction 
in gun violence hmm. and and I'm very proud of that. But the folks of Brooklyn elected me to do more than just eradicate gun violence. They want me to think more holistically. And I started my career as a a domestic violence prosecutor hmm. and a sex crimes prosecutor. I was in the DV Bureau and the Sex Crimes Bureau in Brooklyn. And I saw the challenges that exist in prosecuting gender-based violence cases. Uh, I saw the development of how those cases um, need to, needed to be handled, the common evidentiary issues they have, that they're difficult to present to jurors, um, and how handling those cases and dealing with those survivors is different than ordinary crime because they have a lot more to lose. They have these are intimate family yeah. members who are committing the crime. Yeah. In some offices across the country, these cases are just randomly assigned to prosecutors who are also handling shootings and robberies. And it's very difficult, I think, under those circumstances to give these cases the kind of attention they deserve and, and the training that these cases need to be successful in moving them forward in our court system. And so we wanted to make sure that we created a, a division that was victim-centered and trauma-informed in our approach. But we also wanted to acknowledge that women are traditionally the victims of these crimes, and they're more likely to be a victim of a gender-based violence crime, whether it be trafficking or domestic violence or sex crimes in their home or in the home of an acquaintance than they are ever you know, hmm. getting robbed on the street or being hmm. a victim on the street. And so I really put a lot of thought into what we can do to um, protect you know, half of our population in this city. And so we've come together to break down silos, to, to do best practices. And I've committed over 20% of our office to exclusively work on gender-based violence cases. And I think this is incredibly important. Uh, survivors of sex crimes and domestic violence have repeatedly told anyone who will listen that law enforcement, that includes prosecutors, has not paid enough attention to these cases. And I made this commitment to be more thoughtful as a DA. So this gender-based violence division is really going to be something that I'm, you're going to see a lot of dividends come out of. But already nationally, two other district attorney's offices following my lead really? have created one. That's great. Including King County, which is Seattle, which is a big jurisdiction. Not Kings, but King. Wow, that's great. That does my heart good to hear to hear that, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes from that. But so, the, the stats on gender-based violence yeah. are very overwhelming. And again, that's not an oft-told story. In fact, it is actually the largest single type of case that my office gets. We get over 10,000 domestic violence cases arrest a year in Brooklyn and about 2,000 sexual assault cases. So it's a staggering problem that has been really under-resourced by prosecutors. Absolutely. So we're almost out of time, but, you know, you say you started out prosecuting sex crimes, domestic violence. You lead an office of people who see a lot of difficult things and have to be with families in their grief and their loss. 
What advice do you give to them and how do you protect your heart in dealing with this for so long? It's difficult. And there is secondary trauma yeah. that prosecutors get. We tell them, I remind them that they're doing really incredibly important work for public safety, for fairness, for justice. I also tell them that they have to take care of themselves because it's easy to be emotionally attached to you know the, the victims and survivors you work with. I've seen prosecutors who have been you know incredibly impacted by the cases they've handled. And I can tell you in my own career, I've been on crime scenes and I've handled cases that I still carry with me from you know over 20 years in the business. You know, they're individual stories of, of trauma that victims have told me and I've seen or crime scenes that I've gone to that have been a bloody mess that I carry with me. Mm. And so this is, you know, difficult work. It's one of the reasons why when people blame prosecutors for all of the ills of the criminal yeah. justice system, yeah. I say, you really don't have any idea what you're talking about. Most people come into prosecution for the reasons why I came in, because we want to help people. District Attorney of Kings County, Brooklyn, Eric Gonzalez, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, but also for doing what you do and being able to explain it so well. And I just wish you all the best of luck in the future and hope to have you back sometime. Hope to be back. Thank you. Thank you very much. And listeners, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to Cut to the Chase. And I'll be starting a new radio show at WABC Radio on March 5th. It'll be Sundays at 4. So, DA, I hope to have you on sometime to discuss big cases. All right. Thank you very much. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.